Hi, I'm James P. Friel. And I'm Dean Holland. It's time to fasten your seatbelts, boys and girls. That's right. If you're an entrepreneur who's wanting to take your business to the next level and have a bit of fun while getting cutting-edge advice on your business, marketing, and sales, welcome to Just the Tips, arguably the best podcast in the entire world. I guess that's good, right? Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. That was easy. That was the easiest thing we did all day. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the idea of having crowded inboxes is not the issue with email. Email is, you know, the, and the reason why chapter three of my book is how paying postage made me a better marketer. And mm. it's not saying that I'm, I'm endorsing direct mail over anything. I'm saying it's, 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 it's still, it's still a, a medium that should be used intelligently mm. and with a lot, of, a lot of care and concern. But I would say that the reason why paying postage made me a better marketer is that I, the discipline that it takes to pay for postage and printing and putting, getting the best creative and putting it out in the mail, we c- couldn't make the mistakes that you can make in email. So right. I'll, I'll get to I'll get to your question in a minute because I, I didn't get to it yet. But I want to I want to preface it with that. So that's the premise that I'm working on. So then the email, if you're going to not take the same discipline when you hit send on an email, then then you're not going to your email is not going to work mm. the same way as direct mail used to work. It's not going to work the way good email works today because you're not respecting the audience, the list, everybody. You know, I call it my online family. It's the list that you okay. go out to and you're, 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 putting, you're, you're putting out stuff and you say, well, I put this offer out. It didn't work. doesn't matter. I'll just go out with another offer next week. You don't know how much it didn't work because it's going to affect open rates. It's going to affect unsubscribes. It's going to and that's when people say, oh, email's dead for me. Mm. So when, when I say email is the killer app, I mean, not to do it the way I do it, because my way doesn't sell enough, probably. But I do a weekly blog. This is the way I do email. I do a weekly blog. I never take an affiliate offer. Not to say that's right. You know, you want to make more money on your list, you can take affiliate offers. I don't take affiliate offers. I basically give them content, stories, whatever. In the PS. I might sell some educational materials, some books, things that are related to what I'm doing. And I'm not a nonprofit. I'm trying to sell too. But basically, it's the concept of fishing without bait. Because most people will go out to their list. They've got a, a, a rod and a hook with tasty bait. The fish are in the water. They pull them in. They put them in the boat. And then they get them in a funnel. And they sell. And that could work. I mean, you used to work with click funnels. It works. It's it's a good way to do it. So many people though are putting out shitty bait yeah. and a shitty hook and yeah. they're getting them in and then they can't do anything with them. They can't move them through a funnel. And that's when they say email is dead. What yeah. I do is fishing without bait means that you're I'm shining a spotlight over the lake on a regular basis with right. content, with and basically what I'm saying is and this was this is Dean's words. Dean says, look. You're when, when you're ready, I'll be there. I'll mm-hmm. be there for you. I have yeah. all this stuff. He has the uh, super signature on his email. Yeah, like the four PS. Uh, like yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I do one or two PSs, and I but everything is in the PS. So basically, I'm saying when you're ready, mm. I'm here. How do you, in a tactical way, differentiate yourself from competition without talking bad about other companies? Because usually, you don't want to call into question decisions. You're prospects or clients have made in the past uh, by talking down the, the competitors, but you want to create a little differentiation. And so on a tactical level, I got this from uh, Karen Kopp, who wrote a book called Biz Dev Done Right. And it's all about creating that separation. And her formulas is this, and it's in the book with some examples, but it's most companies can, or most advisors can, or most whatever you are, whoever you are, can but only we can. So mm-hmm. it, you know, so from a financial standpoint, most advisors can provide financial products and, and services, but, but only we have a knowledge of your company's, you know, benefits package that no one else has. So only we can anticipate the problem, blah, blah, blah. So, and it, you can change those words. Only, only, you know, everyone can, only a few can, you can adjust it, but that's how you separate yourself from 
everyone else without really talking bad about the others. Mm, I like that. I like and, that. It's and, like, hey, here's what everybody else is doing, but here's the one thing that we're doing that right. nobody else is really doing. Important point on this. Whenever you're talking about differentiation, one, I have 17 rules of radical relevance in the book, and one of them is only differences that matter, matter. Meaning right. when you talk about what makes you different, it better have a, you know, make a difference to that person you're talking to. Otherwise it, it's, it's worthless. I, maybe it'll attract someone's attention, but you know, if there's nothing else there of substance, then, then you lose them. So, you know, I see a lot of people, especially solopreneurs building their business based on hobbies and interests in their favorite color and all these fun things. And there's nothing wrong with letting your personality show through. That's fine. But those differences don't matter, right? Mm. Only things that, that have a benefit associated. So that's that's one of the ways to get tactical. And like, dang, like, why am I not ranking? Like, it doesn't matter, like, what I've been doing. Like, it's been a year. Like, I can't, like, I don't appear anywhere. Like, what the heck is going on? Like, this stuff does not work. SEO is total bull crap. Like, there's, <laughs> like, there's no way this works. Like, forget it. Total waste of time. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> works. Nothing works. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like... So the whole like age thing is kind of like, imagine this, like you walk into a bank and you sit down with the banker and you're like, yo, I've got this amazing new business. I'm making these ABC widgets. Like I need a million bucks. Guy's like, okay, cool. Like you need a million bucks. Like what do your financials look like? Like how many, you know, how much did you make last year? How much did you make the year before? You're like, dude, it's brand new. Like, like it's a new business. Like I need money. Mm -hmm. So what does a banker tell you when you're a brand new business? Like, Either you need to have some sort of collateral or right. like you need some financials. Yeah. Uh, in the real world, obviously you can have, you know, you can have a guarantor or whatever, but like in the actual digital world, it doesn't work that way. It's like Google is looking at your past, right? So like when you don't have two years of like indexable experience on Google, it filters you and it puts you into like a sandbox, like pretend like you like, you know, some kid was bad and you put him into the corner of the room, they got to stay there. And everything that they do, no matter how great the links are or like how great the content is or anything like that, it's all filtered through this filter sandboxed. So you're basically sandboxed for two years. And so I always ask people like, okay, cool. Like you want to get this thing out there, but like how long ago did you launch? Right. This is like a huge factor that people don't understand. They're like, that really, really is frustrating in the first couple of years. And so one way that I learned to get around this is by buying an aged website, not buying an aged domain. I used to think, okay, I'm going to buy a domain that has some history, but that doesn't work because when you buy the domain, it transfers all the, all the content's gone, all the links are, right? So one way to get around it is spend a little bit of money, a few thousand dollars on buying something intact. Hmm. I have to do all the due diligence and stuff like that, but it's so much easier than going with a blank slate. And if it's not congruent, if it's like, uh, you know, misleading or confusing or whatever, then, you know, people will get the click and you're getting charged for the click, right? So it's in your best interest to create a solid preframe. You get charged just for them watch seeing this as or scrolling through. So you better make sure it's like, all congruent. And that's, congruency is a big one because what your ad says to what your page says. That's sometimes if a page isn't converting, we're also looking at that congruency. What is the ad saying? What does the page say? Is there like a discrepancy somewhere? Are they getting confused? Is it talking about the exact same thing? Or is it a little different? Those are really important because once they get to the page, it just needs to be an easy yes. Your ad should have been like, oh yeah, I want that. They go to the page. It's like, yeah, it's just a repeat of exactly what I said. I just want. Okay, let me get it. Versus I'm going to give you a whole bunch of more information. They're like, no, no. Yeah, just me. Right. Sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure we're talking about on this show, because this, you know, this is going to be on our channel and everywhere and specific things inside the ad manager. Like, how do you go and do this? Like all those things are changing, like on an hourly basis. Right. But right. the strategy of how you think about it, how you approach it, like all those things remain consistent. Um, and so maybe this next question is, you know, I don't know, strategic or it's tactical and you'll, you'll have to be the judge of that, Jessica. But once something is working, how do you scale it? Right. There's like a whole other, you know, train of thought to like, okay, we got, you know, like you said, we got those first 200 people on the webinar. 
and we got the, you know, three, four dollars per registrant. We saw our numbers. It looks good. Okay, cool. I've got something that's working now. How do I turn that into that revenue goal? Like, how do I get, you know, the 300,000 or the 3,000 people there? Like, how do you, how do you scale something that's working? Okay. So first off, I just think this is so funny that you just said that because I just got something in the mail yesterday that is perfect to what you just said. And James, I think you already kind of might know about this. So I'm just going to show it because it's perfect what you just said. So we just got this made. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. For those of you guys who are just listening to the audio, she's holding up a t-shirt that says, scale the poop emoji out of your ads. <laughs> It's the best thing. So this is something that I say a lot to our team. I'm like, well, just scale the shit. Oh, we don't. I don't know what we say on the show. So scale the poop out of it. I say to my team all the time. So we got some ads for it because it's so true. So if you have something that's working and you're like, I did the webinar, I had 200 people show up. I had a two and a half, three percent conversion rate. That's amazing. What, what do I do next? Create next goal, right? What's your next goal? So whatever you hit just then, make sure it's realistic. Don't go from I made $5,000 to I want to make $100,000 make some more incremental steps that just seem more realistic because you know, right. like, so, so just so we're not, so everybody's clear on the incremental. So five, I made 5,000. Now I want to make 10,000. I made 5,000. I want to make 7,500. I made five. I want to make 20. Like what? No, it's also about what your budget is, what you, what you want to budget, right? So if you did 5,000, there's no reason why you can't triple that. So why can't we make 15 or even 20,000? That's, there's no reason why you can't do that, but work your numbers backwards. Okay. And then just say, this is what I need to spend for that. And also take it into account because every single time you do a webinar, the conversions can vary. Depends on who is actually opting in and yeah. all the different pieces. So if I converted a little less, would I still be okay? So I always like to be more cautious than realistic. So if I want to hit five thousand to twenty thousand dollars in sales, and my conversion rate last time was two and a half, I'm going to say I'm going to convert it to just to be a little safer. Is this working for me? Am I still profitable? Which most likely you are, and then start there. And then once you hit that goal go up higher. And at that point, you can scale a lot faster. Once I feel like you've gotten to that mark, you can probably scale a lot faster if you're willing to put the budget in. And if you've already converted a couple times at a very similar conversion rate, you're pretty good to go and say, I want to hit 100,000. Just make sure you know your numbers along the way. So if you're, you realize you're not hitting something, you can backtrack and pivot if you need to. And how free and how frequently are you looking at these numbers? Every day. Every day. Every day. Yeah. Yeah, no, your number times a minute. <laughs> I remember when I first started advertising, it was like an F five refresh party. <laughs> My full time job is now hitting refresh. I'm like, I've reached sixteen people. Come on, <laughs> come on, let's go seventeen. <laughs> yeah, definitely every day. But you know, some people do get very nervous. They're like, literally, need a straight jacket on because they just want to look at it all day. And like. It's, you know, 10 a.m. and I haven't hit this. It's 1 p.m. I haven't hit this. Calm it down. And your cost per lead will fluctuate. So if you're looking at a daily basis, it will stress you out. Because one day you might be at six, but then the next day you might be at three. So like looking at a three-day time frame is really helpful. But we we do look every day to see the trend. But three-day holistic average is where I'd probably look at so you don't freak yourself out a little bit. I want everybody to listen to me and get this because this is really the whole reason why we are trying to uh, or why we do differentiate. If you do not differentiate your promise, meaning you're promising the same thing that others are, and you do not differentiate in your mechanism, meaning mm. how your product or service works to deliver that promise, all you've done is allow for the commoditization of your product, meaning mm -hmm. now your product is a commodity. Now your pricing is determined by the marketplace because mm -hmm. if your, your product works the same way everything else does and it delivers the same result the way everything else does, why would anybody in their right mind pay you more for yours? You've allowed it to become a commodity. We never want to ever, ever market and sell um, pure commodities because uh, you end up being price shopped. You have no or, uh, or, or it's very difficult to create um, urgency in, in driving the, the, the sale. It becomes extremely difficult to um, have any kind of uh, compelling marketing argument. How do you prove that yours is superior? You don't, right? Like the whole thing falls apart when your product is viewed as a um, commodity. And so the way today to just get to the end for, for time purposes, to skip to the, the, um, the tip 
um, <laughs> is, uh, is like, look, you know, today it's okay to promise the same result. Like it's fine. You can learn from your competitors. Part of the examination, the research process is seeing what it is that your competitors are saying. Look for trends among your competitors. Remember, by the way, a competitor is anybody that is selling a uh, a solution that addresses the same problem you do. It's not just so like if you're a chiropractor, right? Remember, people are, are let's say people are coming to you because you got low back pain. Well, anybody and everybody that promises to alleviate low back pain is a competitor for you. Mm-hmm. In home inversion tables, massage therapy, physical therapy, personal trainers, all of those that are promising that they can help alleviate low back pain. Um, they are a competitor to the chiropractor. Why? Because people aren't, people don't buy products and services because they want the product and service. They buy the product and service because they want the result, mm-hmm. the transformation, yeah. the outcome, right? So we could learn from competitors when we're doing our examination, our research. We can learn, we can see what kind of trends, like what, what promises are, are, are we seeing? And we could take that, right? So we're going to use this promise, this big, bold, audacious, true, and believable promise of result. And then we are going to find our unique mechanism. That mechanism, the unique mechanism is how your product or service uniquely works to deliver that, that result. And mm-hmm. Um, unless you are selling a pure commodity, you can find and identify the unique mechanism. There's multiple different, there's multiple types and we don't need to get into that. That, That's not important. What is important is recognizing that, that, that once we've identified the unique mechanism, once we've determined that we're going to differentiate with our unique mechanism, with how our product or service uniquely works to deliver the um, promise the aim of creating a compelling marketing message, which was your original question, it seems like we've gone like I've taken you guys on a on, a, on an absurd adventure just to get to this point. Um, that our job at that point is to prove that this mechanism is not only different from what it is that you've experienced before, what it is that you're familiar familiar with, what it is that you've tried before, but that this unique mechanism is superior to every other mechanism, method, process, framework, system Mm. out there for delivering the result. It's not enough to just be different. We use the difference to get attention. We use the superiority of the mechanism uh, to generate the conversion. That's how you you're, you're able to. And I want you to, I want you to picture this, right? I want you to just think about this for one second. So uh, number one, I'm able to, when we follow this, when you guys follow, when we follow this, this approach and we introduce to the market, we basically go to the market and and for lack of a better phrase and say, I've got a, a new and different way for you to experience X, Y, Z results for you to lose weight, for you to do whatever. And I've got a new and different way in this way, right? It's, it's very different from what you're probably familiar with. Um, here's how this uh, is different. Here's how this works. Here is what makes this so superior at producing faster results or uh, more reliable results or more consistent results or whatever, right? Here's what makes this superior. Now, what I'm doing is I want you to get this. I'm laying out an argument that proves that this mechanism that I'm introducing them to, I'm saying there's a new and different way for you to, for you to lose weight. It's totally different from everything that you're Mm -hmm. familiar with. It's not only different, it's, it's far better. And let me tell you why, let me show you, let me prove this to you. And then boom, 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 boom. Here's why. And here's why it's easier. Here's why it's faster. Here's why it's, it's more consistent, right? Now, all of this time I'm talking about the unique mechanism. I'm not talking about my product. I'm not talking about my service. I'm not talking about my offer. I'm talking Mm. about this mechanism and I'm educating on this mechanism. I'm educating the prospect on the fact, uh, uh, on the fact that it's different and superior and I'm showing why. So I'm teaching, but I'm teaching in a way that gets buy-in on the mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. So that by the time I am done with that marketing portion, remember, I'm not talking about my product. I'm not talking about the, the features, the advantages, the benefits. I'm talking about the mechanism. When I am done, I have led the prospect to see the mechanism as superior, therefore to want the mechanism, not my product yet, right? But yeah. the, the mechanism, at right. which point when I segue into the offer, which is now the fulfillment, which is right. The, they, they get the unique mechanism when they take advantage of the offer. They get the unique mechanism inside the product, inside the service, inside the software, right? 
so by the time I'm done getting them to see the unique mechanism as superior, they want it. I have perfectly set up the sale for the offer, and I've done it with education uh, by introducing something new and different, leveraging a strong killer point of differentiation, um, and uh, and and it uh, it's just a beautiful thing in motion. It really is when done right. And so, so along those lines, you know, one of the key things about you know relationships seems to be brand. Right. And that's building that connection. And people understand that brand is how you build a connection with an audience. Do you have anything that you think you would be helpful for people to hear about going from just selling things to building an actual brand? Oh, absolutely. So to your point about, hey, the purchase is still about relationships. So don't use technology to be weird at people. Right. Because like you wouldn't do that in person. Think about it like this. You're walking in a parking lot. Someone pops their trunk and goes, hey, I got a bunch of T-shirts. You want to buy them? Just give me your credit card number, sucker. And you're like, holy shit, you'd call the cops. Versus if I walk in a store, I know there are business licenses that there's a physical location. It feels much more legit. In the online world, consumers are wise. They know anyone could just open up a store. A Shopify store costs 29 bucks a month. So anybody could do it. So the level of hurdle for trust is much higher that you have to get over. And I think one of the ways to do that, and this is also one of the things that you can use against those big brands like Walmart that are killing your Facebook ads. As part of your brand building, one of the early mistakes I see people make is they're like, we here at Acme Co. Uh, have uh, 10 hundred employees. And you're like, no, you're just one guy in a basement. And you know what? That's okay. And you should own that. Like people buy for people, not brands. The reason that there's these big companies hiring mascots and spokespeople is because they need a face. Well, you already have that for right. you. Tell your story, live your truth, be yourself. Like don't try and hide behind a keyboard. Just be yourself and people will decide if they like you or trust you. And it will make building that early relationship so much easier. And I see so many entrepreneurs, they have this huge advantage over these big brands and they like absolutely run away from it thinking that that's what they're supposed to do. No, oh my gosh, be yourself, put your personality right. That is it. your over the brands, the big brands. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. So a lot of people feel like they have to have a big, huge, gigantic list. Mm in order to get their business really moving. Like, but you guys have defied the Rob odds. How does really, it happen? One of, the Rob's, one of the lessons that Rob learned really early on in life was size doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. Um, I, I, think, I think that for me, here's how I think about it. If you grow a massive list, uh, that kind of falls in line with the idea that you just throw enough shit at the wall and some of it will stick, right? That just th falls in line with you just, you've got loads of people, we'll play a numbers game, some of them might buy some stuff. Whereas if you've got a small list, you're kind of able to and forced to get to know the subscribers much better. Now, sure, we didn't know all 4,000 of them by name, for example, but you, you really start to pay more attention to the trends of the, of the small number of people. It's much harder to do that when a list gets massive. So I think what that meant was we were able to really close and had to really closely pay attention to the people on our list, this kind of customer avatar thing that everyone talks about, we realized, well, actually, there is no one customer avatar. There's probably like four or five different avatars within that list. So we can analyze them very, very carefully. And having that small list enabled us to pay really close attention to who on our list specifically wanted what. So really early on in that journey, we started saying, right, Let's look at what email marketing is generally and how most people do it. And it is generally, it has always been a blanket marketing thing. You know, you would send out some emails, you would hope that enough people open them, enough people click on them, and then enough of those people go ahead and buy. And we thought, actually, what if you could do that differently? What if instead you could work harder to make sure that people actually receive fewer emails from you and the emails they do receive from you are much more targeted about the stuff they want to hear about? And that became like a mantra for us very early on. One of the things I did as well is I was fully unaware of average open rates. So I remember Rob calling me one day when he was working in the internet marketing niche. And he said, oh, what's your open rate on that email? And I was like, oh, it was terrible. I think it was like, I don't know, 74% or something. And he was like, what? <laughs> oh, that is terrible. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, and I'm so angry about it. And he was like, mate, that's ridiculous. I'm like, I know, I just, I think it was a subject line. He was like, no, no, no. And it's a bit like my subscription program. I have a membership program still running to this day and my retention rate 
Uh, my retention on months is eighteen. I it's, think. Yeah, higher than that. I think eighteen. Yeah, but... Eighteen months plus is my is my retention on it. Wow. Just because of the really close relationship that I forge with each of those people. Because the big thing for me is like stop treating it like just a pool of people, and mm-hmm. instead treat them as individuals and realize they actually do, even at scale, need at least the perception of personal significance. Mm. It's so easy to feel like you're one of 100,000 people on someone's list and they don't care. Whereas if you can create a perception that they do care and you do matter, because actually they do, because each one of those individual 100,000 people unsubscribe, you don't have a list anymore. Right. This is interesting, isn't it, James? Like you and I had a, um, we had a conversation just the other day um and and james had ran a particular campaign to his list um that we'd actually discussed in a previous uh podcast episode and a part of this whole campaign in communication with the list was actually centered around you know like putting an initial email out to gauge any interest whereby people would actually respond you know not this whole oh it's just an autoresponder and if people reply it goes back to a dead email that no one ever sees this was like an engineered campaign and um, and anyway the moral of of what i was about to say is like what james said to me uh was it last week i think was like how actually communicating on a more personal level with his list had done wonders for his own mindset and approach to his own audience because i do think it is sometimes easy to slip into just like oh i send a list uh, i send an email to my list and i think it's actually easy even though like everybody that's got a list knows that they're people it's not just like they're just numbers but i do think to a degree it can be quite easy for people to fall into a, a habit perhaps of not necessarily giving that the the perhaps the credibility or the attention that it deserves yeah i mean yeah i think that's i think that's right i think sometimes it's easy to become impersonal that's it yeah. that was the word there you go you see i need you around me james to put my uh, ridiculous wording into something <laughs> something more I mean, something I, I, coherent yeah, i don't know what i'm trying to <laughs> <laughs> so I no, mean, but it, it's it's true though, and that that was actually like a really big uh, revelation that that you know Dean Dean shared with me, and I was like, okay, let me like let me try this out, and I got much more reinvigorated with communicating with all these people because I was like, oh wait a second, like we're having we're having a conversation, and this this person needs this, and this person needs this, and here's what here's what's going back and forth. So so you guys like when you're talking about this, so are you using? surveys like how are you you know you said there's maybe like four or five avatars in that list how do you figure out who those people are and and how to how to make them feel significant individually significant even in on scale i love that expression just before you answer individually significant what a great thing Mm. (laughs) the real easy way of doing this is just read their minds right yes right for those of us who have not been trained to do so can you just (laughs) pop over to the trademarks office and trademark individually significant (laughs) yeah great that would be a great email marketing course i think so basically let's let's put this into a real life example we've got a friend who is a a fitness trainer and he has a lead magnet on his website and people opt in for it i can't honestly remember what it is off the top of my head but basically applies to anyone who's kind of interested in fitness now it would be easy to say that his customer avatar is i don't know a woman in her mid 40s who has two kids is really busy wants to lose some weight hasn't really got the time to do it blah 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 blah. be easy just to say because that's the biggest that's that's kind of like who he's who he likes to help and Mm. it's very easy for us whatever niche you're in whatever you sell to assume that you've only got one type of customer or if i focus all of my stuff towards them there's enough of those people but actually when you start to break it down if you think about the fitness industry for a second he's got people who are opting in for his free gift and the only thing he knows about them at that moment in time is that they're opting in for that one free gift he doesn't know anything else about them but for example somebody might opt in for that free gift who wants to lose weight somebody else might opt in for the same free gift who actually wants to put on muscle somebody else might uh, you know bodybuilding somebody else might opt in for that exact free gift who actually wants to train to run a marathon and the stuff that he needs to sell them, coach them, help them with. In fact, it would actually be detrimental to their health if he treat those people in the same way. Yeah, they could be hurt. Exactly. Mm. So you have to kind of think this through. On a really obscure example, we've got a friend and a client who is a children's magician, and he teaches children's entertainers how to sell magic shows into schools, which is a really lucrative thing for kids' entertainers to do. And basically, he's got three different ways he can help you. If you've already got a show, he can help you get booked. If you want to write a show, then he can help you to do that. And if you just want to buy the rights and like a license to perform his show, then you can do that. Now, this is a really obscure example. What that means is he's got a list of like a few thousand people. 
again, really small niche, but those th- the, the, those three types of people are almost equally represented within those subscribers. We know this because we've found out. And what that means is that there's no way he can just send an email to everyone on, on the list and perfectly serve them because they are all looking for slightly different things. So like I said, I think the first thing is let's break it down into individual avatars. I've had a variety of different affiliate programs. So we'll just, just to cover that and we'll look at the differences and, and, and get to what what you're asking. So I've done like a product launch affiliate model where you orchestrate a seven day launch, you're rallying all your affiliates and it's just a short seven day window and everybody's pushing that and promoting that. So that's like the one thing, but I I don't really do that anymore. Um, which brings us in line with your question. So what I have now is uh, a long-term evergreen affiliate platform with like affiliates that are always looking for stuff to promote. Now here's the thing. To keep somebody promoting for you and keep them as a long-term affiliate, like one or two situations needs to happen. Either that affiliate is always bringing like fresh leads and blood into their own business, therefore allowing them to continually keep exposing your offer to new people. Because if they do like a one-off promotion, everybody in their audience has seen it. So it's not yeah. they can keep doing that every day. They've got a affiliates <laughs> right. are going to keep promoting new stuff. Like your average affiliate might promote a new offer. Some people every day, some people once a week, some pe- everybody's got different schedules, but there's no way anybody can just promote the same thing to the same people over and over and over again. So you're either going to need affiliates that are constantly bringing fresh blood into their own business and would present your offer on an ongoing basis to everybody new coming into their business. That's a great situation to set up because you put putting continual exposure of your offer. And the other thing is, of course, is like affiliates like new stuff to sell. So it's about really as well as a business owner, if you've got your core offer, let's say, and that's like a, a $2,000 thing or whatever it might be. If you are the type of business like what I am, where we have free plus shipping offers or entry level customer acquisition offers. If you can create like new ones of those on a regular basis, maybe it's like three, four to five times a year, whatever it might be, you're giving new stuff to your affiliate audience, to the affiliates that already are promoting for you. You're giving them fresh stuff that they can keep presenting. They can go to their audience and fully get behind a promotion of a new offer. And if you're the one giving those new offers and you're already proven as a great joint venture partner for that affiliate, they will still keep promoting your new stuff. Mm, mm. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. So you said that you'd had several different uh, types of affiliate programs. What what can you expand on that? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So what what we used to do, like I say, was just like the seven day short window orchestrated launch where we booked it in. It's in four months time and we're rallying all our affiliates up for everybody to promote in those specific set dates. That's like the 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 Jeff Walker product launch style business. And you're providing like all the promotional resources and anything that people might need um, to actually promote. Whereas today, what we actually have is um, a, a big part of our business is like a private sort of closed door affiliate program, um, which is much more hands on. We don't these aren't people that already have big audiences typically and they just want like their affiliate link. These are people that we train how to be affiliate marketers. We teach them. We provide the coaching, the training, the webinars and all that kind of stuff. So we're actually our affiliate program is in actually teaching people to be affiliates as well. We're training people how to sell our stuff. We don't just give them stuff and say like, good luck making some money. We train Mm -hmm. our affiliates. We teach them. We provide all the training so they know how to best go out there and sell our stuff for maximum return for themselves. So we have like like a full program now that does that. Right, right. So, so, but the the long and the short of it is the better you equip your affiliates. Yes the better off you're going to be. 100%. And and the thing is like not to be disrespectful to people, but it's just how it is. Like in my 10 years, I believe that a lot of affiliates are relatively <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to word this correctly, but 
lazy. (laughs) 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 So like, well, now that the cat's out of the bag, right, right. And so like the, the thing is when you have affiliates, like some people are like, they will always go the extra mile. Like there's certain people I could name now that do promotions that just freaking blow your mind. You're like, how the heck did you just make a hundred grand in five days promoting my thing? Like, what on earth did you do? And you dig deeper and they were like, oh, well, I created these custom campaigns. I recorded these three videos. I did like they've, they've gone all in on your promotion. But that's sadly a rarity. What's more common in my experience with a lot of affiliates these days is they're like, they agree to promote your stuff. And then they're like, oh, can you give me some email swipes that I can just copy and paste? And can you tell me where my affiliate link is? And it's like they, they literally, it's like they want a package. Like, just give me the stuff. I'll plug it in and mail it to my list. And so it's yeah. not, not, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but it's become increasingly normal over the last years that people want just like a plug and play solution to promoting your stuff. And like, it, that's another element I feel here is like, Make it as easy as possible for somebody to promote you. Uh, there's a process I, I call story therapy. Um, and it sounds like really like woo-woo a little bit. But uh, what I see as is like our ability to understand, to document, and to publish and share our stories is therapeutic. And the more we can do that honestly, the, the more we can really own our story and then own our business, own you know, the, our platform and, and message. And so by doing that, what we need to do is kind of go through like three different steps, so to speak, of story sharing. Um, and, and for like we discover, we document, but um, the story sharing process begins with sharing it with ourselves first. That's the easiest to do. And many of us do that in the form of journaling. Um, you know, journaling sometimes happens just on Facebook or maybe it's like an impersonal diary or journal. Uh, we can document it in the form of podcasts, but a lot of times it starts privately that we start to kind of develop stories in our head. Um, they would tell ourselves we document things. We start writing down, but it begins privately. And then it begins with the next step of like more of like loved ones or close friends, those who we trust on a more of a still of a private level. And, uh, and we share stories through, through that way. And we begin to understand more and we get more comfortable sharing the hard stories and the good stories. And, uh, and then we go to a public level, like, which is like that next big, step and uh, when we get that public level that's when we're actually like we're fully into being comfortable with sharing stories again and again because we have um grown to to understand um like and be more self-aware of of the stories that guide you know lead us forward and the stories that hold us back from momentum um and, uh, and so like, I think that's, it's really those three steps and, and sometimes too, people are thrown into the fire of starting with the public sharing first and then, but they still build backwards um, from that. Um, and then like that comes in the form of the thing of like a Tony Robbins event where people get put on the spot and all of a sudden they have to get vulnerable quick. And so it's like, that's that public area where they're given permission to share. And then what they do is then dissect it. And revisit that story on a more private level with a loved one or friend, and then on a on a private level, and and kind of go through that looped cycle of uh, of story sharing. So, I think uh, I think the key is to really just practice, practice, practice at understanding and documenting our stories um, in those three forms. That's pretty cool. So there's like you don't have to like go big public with it first, is what you're saying. Like try it out. Yeah. Try it out. Yeah. Like, and, and there's plenty of like, you know, I'll bring up Julie again, just cause um, it's relevant in my mind. Like there are stories that we have even documented on video that have never been shared that are very personal to her. Cause we're trying kind of a little, a more deep personal approach that, um, that we have documented, right? Like she shared it, like some stories I feel like she, she hasn't really shared with too many people, but it's one of those things that it's like, Oh, it's the timing's not right, but we have it documented. So it's shelved. Um, and, and that's kind of what we have to do is like, whether we, you know, a lot of us love writing, um, incredible writers, um, out there, or, you know, you guys have incredible voices uh, for, for radio and faces for radio and video at that, but, uh, (laughs) I gotta, I gotta not dig a hole for myself. (laughs) And, uh, and so it's, it's understanding like, you know, what, what area of like content creation 
um, fits us best and how can we document our storytelling that way, our stories that way, and then go through those, those stages and recognize like, okay, as I build up my bank of stories, what stories fit well in like, am I ready to share them now? Or should I shelf them um, and just have them in the library? And maybe they just become a personal history um, piece that never gets shared and only with family. So I think, uh, but but it, there's an incredible thing that like our personal journey and stories, uh, especially now more than ever, uh, help us build businesses in a unique way. Meaning like I came from the corporate world and being honest and open could happen but in in very private levels with like good friends but like you know like you're not gonna go and start talking about uh religion or politics super heavily with your coworkers the same way that you maybe can in uh with other entrepreneurs or friends that you build up in in this space so i think it's recognizing that we have an opportunity to be more honest and vulnerable um on all three of these levels uh to help build our businesses but also build our personal lives as well I have tried to explain. People ask me, what is sort of the single biggest mistake people make when writing online? And that's pretty easy. The single biggest mistake is that they're not spending enough time on their headline because their headline is, is the most important thing for two fundamental reasons, one of which is that most people don't go beyond the headline. A good post of mine, a good post has a click-through rate of 15% which means only one out of six people. And this idea goes back very long in, in the book, How to Go Viral and Reach Millions. I quote David Ogilvy, a guy who was considered you know, the father of advertising. And he says, on the average, five times as many people read the headline as read the body copy. So his, his point, and he says a change of headline can make a difference of 10 to one in sales. So he understood tweaking the headline Getting the headline right, that is crucial. A, because sometimes that's all people are going to see. So you better make sure that your headline has the piece of information you want to deliver. And secondly, the headline is going to determine whether you've hooked people in and uh, and go further. So a uh, headline has to do a bunch of things, one of which is it's going to have to trigger emotions, trigger some emotions that trigger interest and in sharing. Uh, and there's a lot of research uh, on what those emotions are. There was a study of New York Times stories and headlines, the most shared uh, emails. They Someone looked at over a multi-year period, looked at what made the top of the most emailed list in order to determine what people are sharing. And they figured out that people like certain emotions they want to share, which are you can remember by the three A's. There's anger, there's anxiety, and then there's awe or you know, really grabbing people with something they've never seen before. So, you know, I think we all know outrage. That's quite popular these days. Can you believe so-and-so said this or did this? It's true in the political room realm, but it can be true with celebrities. Oh, my God, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow did this on Goop. You know, we're, we, we like to get outraged uh, and we like to share our outrage. Uh, another one is anxiety, of course. Uh, that would be uh, three things you're doing wrong in a job interview. Oh, no, wait, I'm doing three things wrong in a job interview. So, you know, uh, or three foods you sh that you're eating, you shouldn't be, you know, all those types of things. And then there's awe, which is like the stuff you've never seen before. Oh, my God, you know, this guy is climbing up, you know, uh, El Capitan without any ropes or any pylons or anything. Or, you know, this this cat is playing the piano or this guy can kick a football through a hoop, 200, any hoop, 200 feet away. You've, you know, those types of things. So those, those are the kinds of things that we're trying to stimulate, get people's attention right away. And, and indeed, one of the things I learned is it's not, not only is your headline important, but, but just the first few words of your headline. Um, and ultimately what I'm trying to do really, if I have a good headline is I'm trying to promise that there's an interesting story that when you click on this, you're going to get an interesting story that's going to hit one of those emotions. Uh, because fundamentally, over tens of thousands of years of developing language, it is stories that are the things that have always gone viral to the point where our brains are really wired to be interested in stories. So, so reading the subheadline of your book, 
Top persuasion secrets from social media superstars, Jesus, Shakespeare, Oprah, and even Donald Trump. That's like, that's an interesting group of people to put together. You're saying Jesus had good headlines? Uh, I'm saying that Jesus was perhaps the most viral person in, in, in human history. Here's a guy who didn't travel very far, you know, you know, less than maybe 100 miles in his whole life. But the things that he said got picked up. And repeated over and over again, and and ultimately, I I, you know, the Sermon on the Mount: "Blessed are the poor, for you know they shall uh, enter, you know, be uh, enter the kingdom of God." And "Blessed are the peacemakers." That sort of thing. That's how it begins. That speech, you know, that has probably been seen or read or heard by you know ten billion people. There have been ten billion Bibles sold uh, uh, printed in the in in the past two thousand years. So. Uh, but those words that he uses, he knows how to not only tell a story a certain way, but he knows how to use language in a memorable way. And that is the figures of speech. And so he uses metaphors a lot. You know, uh, I am the good shepherd, that sort of thing. The Bible is filled with metaphors. Metaphors are very grabby and memorable. We see them in advertising, you know, Chevy like a rock. These types of things uh, are very common. He uses, you know, repetition, judge not lest ye be judged, that sort of thing. So when you really study what are the words and languages uh, approach that people use, uh, there's a type of language and there's a type of storytelling. And indeed, the, the most popular thing in the whole, the whole book is my discussion of the very simple rule to make your stories more uh, interesting uh, and more clicky. Until you move people off of your social media onto your email list, you do not own that relationship. Right. Right. Great case in point, whether you love them, hate them, anywhere in between, Donald Trump had a ton of people who were following him on Twitter. And finally, he pissed off enough people that they were like, we're taking your Twitter, man. Right. <laughs> and so there he goes immediately. He's got a, a platform where he's broadcasting to tens of millions of people. And then instantly that line is cut. And, you know, all of us, uh, you know, direct response marketers, we've been saying this for years. Right. Use the platforms to get people onto your platform so that you actually own the relationship. But there's so many people out there who are at risk. People who have, you know, Instagram followings of 100, 200, 300,000 people or more that if they say something the wrong way, they violate terms of service in some kind of capacity, gun. And then mm -hmm. it's like, man, I don't want the, I don't want the feeling of my entire business being at risk to somebody else's rules because I may have said something that somebody somewhere didn't like or didn't even uh, understand, right? Like there's posts that get taken down. Like, uh, um, I had a, I had a post at one point talking about hiring people and Facebook flagged it for deceptive employment opportunities. I got the same with my burlesque profile picture. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm grateful for the rules in that case so that I didn't have to scratch out my eyes once I saw it come through my feed. Um, but, but the mistakes are made. Like right. genuine mistakes can be made too. Like you might not even say something that's against the terms of the platform. It could be a bot that's like, oh, this you're you said hiring. I have a you know an algorithm that says anything that says hiring must be a deceptive employment opportunity. Like take it down or get banned, right? And so so you got to also recognize that while there are advantages to these platforms, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're safe. Right. With the business that you're building uh, because of that exposure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I guess, uh, you know, what we're, what we're sort of saying here is not use it or don't use it. We're saying use it with, I guess, purpose would yes. be a thing. Use it. Uh, oh, these are like mini tips right now. We're summarizing on some <laughs> mini tips. I'm not even going to go there purpose. with the mini tips. So many people out there have been building uh, or intend to build a list, to build a following, to build an audience. And 
you you are the person in the trenches working with all of these people. Where where do you think things initially go wrong and why people don't make the most of their list? Um, I think that it's a it's a combination of of two things, I would say. The first is you know, the the shiny object in marketing is those ads, right? Everybody wants to get to that place where they're able to now run ads and put offers out there. And I think that people mistake an ad for something that is supposed to sell their thing. When in reality, I believe that the ad is designed to capture an email address so that you can then move that person from a pay to play platform, such as Facebook or Google or YouTube or wherever it is that you're advertising and take them to a place where it's now free for you to market to them indefinitely like your email audience. Right. Mm. Um, I think that the second part where people kind of go wrong is thinking, you know, well, now that they're in my, on my email list, my automations are going to take care of it. Right. I've set up a welcome sequence or indoctrination sequence or soap opera sequence or whatever sequence you have in place to kind of welcome someone to your world. Um, but, but at some point that ends, right? And so let's say it's six emails, 10 emails, 30, 60, however many you want them to be. At some point it's going to end. And what happens to that person afterwards, right? It's just like a, like a friend or someone you meet at a party or someone that you meet while you're on vacation. If you don't consistently reach out to that person and actually nurture that relationship and invest in that relationship, it's going to be really, really hard for you to make a withdrawal when you want something or when you need something. Um, if, if you've kind of ghosted them, you know, so I think it's, the problem is a little twofold. It's thinking that the ad does something other than what it actually does. And second, not following up and nurturing that relationship and making investments in it. That's really interesting. I think, um, you know, what you said about the ad do ex- expectations about the ad doing something that's not necessarily supposed to do. Um, you know, even if you have, like, even if you have a killer ad, you're still, your sales conversion rate is still only single digits, like, you know, low, mid single digits. If you're good, mid to high single digits, if you're crushing it. And yet, and so like 90 plus percent of all of that ad money could be wasted unless you're actually like taking that ad and the value that you get from it and going a step further and continuing the relationship with people until they're ready to buy. Yeah, completely. And I, and and that's exactly it. It's like when somebody, when somebody clicks on your ad, it's basically them saying, Hey, that thing that you're talking about or that you just showed me is relevant to me. It's interesting to me. I would like to know more. Um, and if they don't buy, then it's like, well, I'm not quite ready to buy yet. I don't know you. I don't necessarily like you yet. I don't trust you, right? Whatever that happens to be. And so that's really where the email list comes in because now they've said, Hey, I'm interested in your thing. I just want to get to know you a little bit more. I want to see some of the results that you've created for people. I have these questions in my mind. Um, and I am hoping that while I'm on that list and I'm actually in communication with you, you'll answer those questions for me so that I can feel comfortable enough to move forward. Right. And so, so Mm -hmm. for me, it's like, The ad, clicking on the ad is them raising their hand saying, yes, I'm interested. Being in your email audience and now actually starting to engage with you, like getting somebody to reply to you from an email audience is like basically them taking a step even closer to you and being like, oh my gosh, James, yeah, like I'm really interested in that thing that you have to say. I'm looking to you for the information, for advice, for guidance on what to do in this situation or regarding that challenge or problem obstacle that I'm facing. Can you help me? And so for me, those replies are really the hot leads, let's say. And those are where the sales opportunities and conversations actually begin. Thanks for tuning in to Just the Tips, where we believe business should be profitable and fun. For show notes, links, and other information on our guests, visit justthetipsshow.com. For more information on how to connect with Dean Holland, visit deanholland.com. And if you'd like to go from being a hustling entrepreneur to an effective CEO, capable of running your company without being stuck in the day-to-day, visit me for free training and resources at jamespfreel.com. Our theme music is Happy Happy Game Show by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License.